Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Selena's Underground Podcast. Oz here, surrounded by brains, man. I've, this is kind of intimidating. This is kind of intimidating today, I'm not going to lie. But anyway, here, here we are, your weekly look at Selena's news, culture, events, all this going on. If you don't already follow us on social media, please do, at Selena's Podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, if you're over 40. Um, and yeah, or listen in, uh, and subscribe as well. I don't know where you listen to this show, but I always suggest Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, one of those apps. It's on there for free. Hit subscribe. Anytime a new episode comes out, it's there on your drive when you're waiting in line, whatever you hit play and you listen to us. And today, like I said, today I have two two guests on the show, and I'm I'm this is cool. This is really exciting. I got two doctors, right? Or I mean, at least it has doctor in front of me. I'm a PhD in philosophy. So, no, no, I got no. Yeah, I got here. I got Doctor Doctor Blair Cushing. Is that right? Doctor Blair Cushing and Doctor John. No last name because you're cool. You got a cool doctor. <laughs> just Doctor John. John. I was in the right Everyone place. Everyone knows who that is. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Yeah, actually, well, Doctor John, we we did have you on a, a couple episodes ago, or recently. You you are um, on the Viviendas para Todos, and yeah, if you want to know more about that, you know, go to that episode out in two forty two or something. It's recent, Around came out in December or January. Viviendas para Todos, because um, we really won't get into that. You know, this is not a really a housing <laughs> one, but we definitely can can get into that. But it, that episode is dedicated to that. So if you sure, want to know absolutely. more about that, and that group is doing some really cool and we stuff. We are on uh, Instagram now. We did oh, yeah. Oh, Instagram. okay. I believe it's VPT underscore Salinas on Instagram. Yeah, VPT underscore Salinas. And yeah, again, it's, it's about housing, doing some really cool stuff. I just, because of that group, I learned about something that's going on within the city that piqued my interest, you know, that I'm, now I'm paying attention to, which is. Again, exactly. I know what you guys want to do with that group. But um, anyway, yeah, go check that episode out. Exactly. Today, we're talking about the pain on my left side. No. <laughs> I got you. This is this is where the American healthcare system has gone now. People create podcasts to get, to get medical advice. Sirius XM, the doctors. Sirius, my wife was telling me that Sirius XM has a dedicated COVID-19 show. That's probably a week old. And I, I definitely want to. Oh, and well, and actually to clarify that, because I know I made the joke at the beginning of the philosophy thing. Are you guys medical doctors? Yes. That's a thing, right? <laughs> other than PhD, than like a philosophy degree. Yeah. right? So we're both medical doctors. And even better than that, we're both family physicians, which means nothing to be intimidated about by us. A good part of our training is in community medicine. We do a community medicine project longitudinally for each year of our residency. And that's really, in my estimation, the heart and soul of family medicine. That's why the community is actually what brought me to Salinas some, I don't know, 30 plus years ago to be able to function and practice in a community that that had a certain manner of issues usually related to poverty and trying to be helpful in kind of not only office approaches, which are barely effective, but looking at the health problems from a a bigger level of what is it about the community that I can help fix? I mean, it sounds lofty, but 
anyway, nothing nothing to be intimidated yeah. about by us. We're solution seekers, wouldn't you say? Yeah, solution seekers. And people shouldn't be scared of their of doctors anyway. That's another like doctors are not trying to like I, from my understanding. You guys are just like just tell me the truth. I don't care how you got hurt. Yeah, just tell me where it hurt so I can fix it. Yeah, yes, you're dumb. People are dumb. Um, but anyway, you say family medicine. What what does that mean? Like all the family at once, like all three of you get in gowns. We're doing it all at once. Uh, <laughs> or yeah, once. I would say sometimes it really does work out oh, that really? way. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, frankly, those can actually be the most challenging visits when everybody shows up all at once. Um, I had a couple of those this week for sure. Um, but yeah, the way I like to think of it is family medicine is we're the only specialty within medicine that really does treat everybody right so like from the baby to an elder person who could be on their deathbed like you can still be my patient so i'm not like just a body part doctor i'm not looking at you and saying like oh not my body part that's i can't treat that whatever your problem is nose i don't deal with noses yeah (laughs) i mean even the er right like i would say er doctors are probably the only other specialty that could similarly say they might be able to treat everybody but i would say most er doctors also don't necessarily have a comfort treating everything that could happen for you because treating chronic conditions they would oftentimes say no you know go go see your primary care doctor go see someone else okay i was gonna say that so you're different than a primary which primary care is kind of like what you would consider your family doctor quote unquote like that guy that you've been going to your whole life and then you start taking your kids there and that so that's, that's us. oh okay yeah <laughs> that's we who are, we are yeah I guess um, definitionally primary care is probably family medicine internal medicine pediatrics and maybe OBGYN doctors you know they'll take care of all that they every problem a, a pediatrician will take care of every problem that a parent might bring their child to the office for you can't to find a pediatric gastroenterologist for a child with diarrhea forget it you'd have to go to san francisco for that so the pediatrician takes all primary care maybe he has to refer five percent of the cases but yeah we're proud primary care physicians we, and, we're generalists and does that so you guys have like offices on Romy lane or or is that I mean not to try to yeah. like promote or yeah. anything but is, that what, that, is that what that means or yeah. like do you work out of a hospital we, or all. I mean again excuse my <laughs> ignorance <It's> just, <laughs> we like she said yeah. oh we have offices everywhere in 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 much of California we, oh. even even in the big cities even in San Jose even in San Francisco you'll be able to get yourself if you're lucky you'll be able to get yourself a family doctor yeah. But like you have to look for again, like again, so, let's just say I, I have health insurance and I uh, and again, I have this pain in my stomach and I'm like, ah, this doesn't feel like some ER type thing that I need to see a doctor. Does. I just I just call Blue Cross and they say, go, go find this person. Like, would, would you be on that list? Or? Yeah. So insurance companies have lists of providers who can you can be part of their practice and. I would imagine even in a place like San Jose or San Francisco, the greatest number of choices on that list in California anyway, anyway, will be family physicians. Might be different in downtown Boston, maybe. I haven't lived on the East Coast for a while. There may be a smaller number of family docs, but... 
Yeah. I mean, I would say that like one of the unique things actually to me about this community, about being in Salinas, is that the vast majority of the patients that I see at my primary practice are actually referred either by other family members or by people that they work with. So, you know, um, yeah, the insurance company makes a list of here's the people who allegedly take our insurance. (laughs) But like, I'll be honest, a lot of them are wrong. And a lot of them are listing my colleagues who exclusively work in the hospital and would never be able to see someone. So um, I think locally, at least the best way to actually find who's a good doctor, who's someone that could see you is through the word of mouth of family and friends. And especially here, colleagues, because I think what um, you really see is, well, who takes my insurance? Well, if we work together and we have the same insurance plan and they take yours, then obviously they'll take mine, right? Oh, man. that And not to get too much into that, but you guys as doctors, because uh, their healthcare, the political side of it is obviously like always, you know, number one or two issue. Um, you as doctors, do you feel that that because you're doctors, it makes you change, you know, your opinions sway one way or the other? Or are you just like, I just want to help people like I don't care money or insurance or whatever. Like it's the people that I want to fix, you know, like, or, you know, or do you, do you think about it more or like, is it a more serious thing? Like, no, it's, it's hard for me, I yeah. guess, to, to word this question. Cause I, again, I don't want to put, you know, make you like politicize it or, or put your political opinion out there, but it's, I, I've never had a doctor, you know, cause it'd be like, doctors can be like, I don't know. I don't ever deal with insurance. I, I really don't have an opinion either way. Yeah. Just give me broken arms, you know? So <laughs> I'm going to go first. Cause I've practiced a lot longer than, uh, Dr. Cushing. So I've practiced in a variety of settings, in a private practice setting, community health center, uh, academic medicine, and now I practice at the prison. And my work life has been, my my work day has been essentially the same okay. in all of those four yeah. jobs. I get up, I come in, I try to make myself useful that day and then I go home at the end of the day or I might have to go by the hospital. I mean, it's so, it's so f- intensely focused what I'm doing and what I'm thinking about. Now, uh, I did not enjoy private practice. So I had to then at the end of the day, go look at the ledger sheet. And I had to then yeah. go try to do this was a long time ago. This was in the 19th. <laughs> so then I had to in the 1980s. So then I had to try to figure out payroll taxes. Yeah. And, and so I did uh. that for a decade. And. And there was no time for political thought. Yeah. Yeah. I was just working hard. And the only political thought about is maybe which insurance should I take? So I stopped doing that, say, 1995, and have been an employed physician ever since. The ranks of which are growing, the more and more of us are are becoming employed by an employer and have less to do with that side of it, the business side of it. There are people out there, though, um, who... That's an important part of their well-being is to grind. And I'm not saying this in a negative way, but like any business, to grind every cent out of your eight-hour day. That's out there. My sense, maybe because we live in Salinas, I've lived in Salinas all the time, is that's not a major driver in a town like Salinas. There are people out there that do it, but most most of the people that I work with and associate and practice with over the years are same thing, going to work in the morning every day going home at the end of the day. 
that's been my experience. That's yes, you answered it better than I asked the question. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> the answer, the, the type of answer I, I was thinking about. So thank you, thank you for understanding. I mean, I guess <laughs> I, I feel somewhat different about okay. it, um, but hard to say if it's because I'm a doctor or maybe it was more my experiences before coming to medicine. Um, because before I was in medicine, I worked in social services and so always was involved in a lot of advocacy work in that way. Um, and so then coming in, I mean, for me, it was actually a big reason of why I even chose medicine. I mean, I'm not even kidding to say, I remember being in Boston. I was in my mid twenties. I went to this meeting at an organization where frankly, like I was the expert in the room. It was about like housing and homelessness and domestic violence. And here comes this doctor, doctor, like Dr. So-and-so where else feels like super happy. Oh, doctor's here. Oh yeah. Everybody like applaud this woman for taking an interest in us. And I remember listening to her talk and thinking, okay, this lady is taking like a passing interest in this field that is like my career. I'm yeah. dedicating my life to this. And like, I, I have government contracts that I go around and teach other people how to do these things and learn about these programs. And she's truly taking like a passing interest in homelessness, but because she can say I'm a doctor, yeah. everybody's like, yeah, <laughs> she's paying attention to us. And I'm not even kidding you that when I was a medical student, I went to medical school in Texas. And even as a student, I would go to meetings and like community events and stuff or like go to visit legislators and you show up and you say that you're a medical student and they're like, oh my God, oh guys, we have a medical student in the room. And like people are applauding you just for showing up and even do anything. And to me, it was like, I saw that there was a different level of power in being a physician to be able to accomplish things in the advocacy world and accomplish things politically. So for me, yeah, it's always been interlinked of you know i have to use this for something i did this for something yeah. it wasn't because i was like so super interested in science or whatever it was because i saw medicine has this inherent power to it if i can get myself through all that like i get something else much bigger you're like blood yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> such, that's such a great story because the way dr blair came to medicine in say the 2000s and beyond maybe the even 2010s and beyond yeah. was very different from when I started in 1979 I think I started medical school it was all about the power it, there was no there was no one in my class that had a career it was sad it was 22 year old kids many of them's parents were physicians mm-hmm. and there was one woman, there was one mother in the class and she was the oddball in the class. So what I'm getting at is much of the folks out there still practicing medicine were weaned out just like I was, that we are the power, everybody else is dumb. I've been to conferences where I've been to CAFP conferences who are talking about doctors are used to being the smartest people in the room. And that's why medicine isn't working <laughs> because kind of like what Blair's alluding to is these problems that Salinas residents face. It's not just here, take this pill. It's, yeah, it can be here, take this pill, the door closes. But Blair showed me early on, I was her teacher over at Natividad Medical Center. You showed me maybe in our first or second clinic that however much time you and I spent on the plan here, when that door closes, the plan's going to fall apart. And you were concerned about the plans falling apart. 
And that's not a value for many people practicing medicine today. So, and I, and I credit that to many personal things about Blair, but also the interdiscipline, you know, the fact that she had another discipline, she had a more in-depth interaction with clients than doctors do, which are, you know, there's a joke about how, there's a joke in the Mexican community about how quick our visits are, right? I'm, I'm not familiar with it, but I'm sure there is. Yeah. Mexicans making fun of something. Yeah. Sounds about right. So there's a diversity of experience. And fortunately, this fellow is at the end of his career, is clearing, approaching the end of his career and we're being replaced by, you know, people who bring many more skills and tools to the job. Well, and speaking of, of again, that I guess, activism or whatever the reasons why you, uh, you Dr. Cushing, this sounds so interesting. I, f- I feel like I'm selling some kind of cream on some late night infomercial. <laughs> Dr. Cushing, <laughs> when you found this, this cream. when you were out in the Amazon <laughs> and you found this process, but now, um, <laughs> you, well, because uh, Dr. John was telling me you were recently either came back or are going to do some work down in, in Texas or Mexico. What, what are you going to do there? What? Yeah. So, um, I guess my, my path post-residency is a little different. Um, I work in multiple different places. So I do have practice a couple of different places that I work here in Salinas, but, um, for about a year now, I've been traveling to Texas and working on the border, um, twice a month, usually every other week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then for the past couple of months, um, that has actually transitioned to doing more work on the Mexican side of the border. So specifically with the, um, refugee camps that, um, exist now. Yeah. And I'm so good. What is the, so you're there helping them, you know, with essentially everything like the, a cough or what from, I guess that's a weird, from a cough to anything else, you know, I mean, it has been an interesting experience because initially we set up just to sort of try and almost like triage or deal with acute visits. And I think now there's more of a recognition that because this is looking to be a longer term situation of people being there, that it's also evolving more into dealing with chronic care. So obviously oh. there's, um, there's a lot of kids in the camp. There's a very large percentage of young people. Um, so it could be just like the simple coughs and colds, um, kids break in there. We had a kid with a tib fib fracture from playing soccer, um, a couple months ago that finally saw his cast come off his leg. Um, tib fib is two bones in yeah. the lower leg, but you know all about those fractures <laughs> because you're soccer. Yeah, yeah. So pretty gnarly fracture for this kid. Um, I've seen some truly life-threatening conditions um what's the most common that i haven't seen at all in the united states in my entire career that i've seen there oh wow um things that we have um because it was something that we couldn't even care for in mexico with the local resources that we work with a um group of attorneys to try and get people what's called medical parole to try and allow them to be able to cross into the united states for the purpose of receiving medical care on medical parole yeah way to come up with a nice friendly name for it government wow but uh what would you say is the most common thing you see though um, I would say the same things that you see here that, you know, just kind of like the regular acute visits of like, yeah, coughs, colds, abdominal yeah. pains. But I think that the 
fear around those types of things is also really amplified that um, you consider that if I see somebody in my office in Salinas and okay, this is just a virus, it's just a cold. And I can kind of talk the parents through like, this is going to work mm-hmm. itself out. Just keep your kid home from school a couple days and, you know, take some ibuprofen, whatever. But it's very different when you don't have a home to return to. And these families are sleeping in tents on the ground um, yeah. with nothing. And so I think we do end up treating a lot more with, you know, cough syrups and over-the-counter stuff that I would never really use in the United States. But you want to feel like you're giving them something. Like yeah. they need something to feel like they're doing anything for their kid because it's a horrible situation to watch your kid suffering like that and you can't do anything about it to make them more comfortable. Yeah, that no, I've... I we interviewed somebody that they were they weren't doctors but they were they were going they were down around the border and telling telling people about the rights and all that and you mm-hmm. just hear about it. it it's so strange it seems like a whole nother world which i guess it is but it's our same country and it's and it's people and it's so weird how the, they get caught up in this system that strange uh, uh, again that, that government system is so i don't know there's a, there's a lot I guess I could say about it, and I don't I don't want to to derail it, and I don't want to, you know, make this kind of a bummer type show because <laughs> there's nothing really positive. I don't you know I don't think there's very much positive going down there. But um, and do you see yourself continuing doing that for the two two times a month for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm committed to going to Texas as long as I need to, and um, oh, Texas. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna give that up. And um, over the past couple of months, I've started like deliberately planning for it into my schedule to build that time to keep going to Mexico and have more of a continuous presence there. Had you been in Mexico before this? Um, you ever not, I mean, not for that purpose, not for working. No, just partying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, many years ago, right? Like I went on vacations and stuff to to Mexico. Like I'm here but to it, heal yeah, the wounds I've caused in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, this is—I um, definitely. Oh, I want to get into this, and I'm, I'm sorry for kind of bouncing around, but this is still medical related. Mm-hmm. But I have two actual doctors here, so I could I could <laughs> see if I'm full of shit or not, like usual. But obviously, we're all there's this whole coronavirus thing going on right now. Am I? Are people overreacting? Is it, I, I I I get it. Cool. Yeah. Let's not help it. Let's not try to get it to spread or whatever. But there's been what twenty deaths in this country reported, yeah. and maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Maybe more. But there was what eighteen thousand flu deaths last year. Mm-hmm. Nobody's canceling events. Nobody's saying wash your hands even more. People laugh at the flu shot every year. And, and but this thing is, why do you think it's, is it really that dangerous, number one? Or, or also, why do you think people are just so like, buy all the toilet paper? So my sense is that, uh, well, there's a lot of, I'm sorry, I got there's so a lot up into this. That. There's a lot into <laughs> this question, but um, it's, there, this is the big, un, this is a, a big unknown. There's a, not a lot uh, in terms of the study of viruses. Right. How communicable is this? 
Right. We know that there are very, very communicable, to put it in perspective, there are very, very communicable viruses like measles, where one individual may infect 12 others before they get better. This communicable meaning it's easy to passable, spread. Yeah. Right, spreadable. Yeah, yeah good point. Uh, so all of that, all matters like that, the case fatality rate or the death rate, which you hear people talking about, that's still all evolving. And as it goes from country to country, it's like a whole new data set has to begin. So what we learned, what folks might have learned in China may not necessarily apply here. So I think that fear of the unknown is 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 always going to be present. And then number two, look, look at the consequences already that that fear of the unknown, it's more than fear of the unknown. There are some, what I'm getting at is look at what happened to the stock market because of, you know, so much of economics is behavioral because yeah. of that fear, look at what's happened. So there are consequences to this thing that's evolving that we still don't fully understand yet. Um, so that contributes to kind of the hysteria that's developing. It w- we haven't helped ourselves in America. I don't think that the public health response has been what it should be for an epidemic. This is happening during a, a political year and yeah. there's a political side and spin that's interfering with what's happening right now. All of this is trying to make the, to make the president sick. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Damn that conspiracy. <laughs> so we're, in, we're kind of in new territory but many of the old, many of the same principles apply now that it's in the country and, and moving. It looks like it's not just travel related. So hand hygiene is key. Whatever you can do to prevent your transmitting this virus to another person will be helpful. And that's always going to be helpful. Number two, how the healthcare professionals manage their office so that we can not get sick ourselves and continue to provide care. And then the third thing is, which is very hard in this country, is people's come and go, people's ebb and flow. In China, you can say, stay in your houses. Yeah. Don't leave your province. This is a free society. Yeah. We can't we can't Fourth say Amendment, that. man. <laughs> yeah. I'm traveling. <laughs> so I yeah, I don't want to talk too long. I'm sure Blair can Yeah, add I mean nice thinking like, like everybody we, run. Right. Like are we overreacting? I think that for many people who get sick, it's not gonna seem like that big of a deal because it's gonna be an illness that you just kind of ride out and you'll be fine. Um, but there are also people who are really high risk for developing a lot of complications. So that being the people who are sick already, um, elderly folks. And interestingly, some of the data that has come out of China was uh, smokers. So I keep telling young people who smoke that (laughs) stop smoking because you'll be someone who dies from coronavirus. I don't know if I've uh, scared anyone into quitting or not. (laughs) That's good use of your power. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, But I do think that we also kind of like we screwed the pooch in terms of containing strategy earlier on you know and i think that also it does really kind of speak to the disjointedness of the american healthcare system that because we don't have a nationalized system and you have all these different private entities that the response was even worse i mean i have a friend who relatively recently started working urgent care up in um, santa clara um, where some of the very first cases were seen in california and he's talking to me about their policies and protocols calls and everything and it's frankly like it was absent they're they're just we're not Mm -hmm. doing the things that they should have been doing to try and keep potentially sick people away from other people so the amount of like contamination 
that could have happened between sick people and healthy people Mm -hmm. just as a result of going into this urgent care office or any of the hospitals that are within the Mm -hmm. same um, system. I mean, they've blown it and they've been blowing it for weeks and they still are moving forward. And so to me, that's when it becomes laughable that like, okay, now we're going to, we're going to say move the university to online classes or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we've already let it just get out of control in the community and that's going to be what it's going to be. Do you think that the way businesses, the way business thrives in America, do you think that has caused any of the delay in the testing? Like competing companies or I don't want to say companies being too slow because to come up with the test because of regulation. No, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as like a failing of the private sector. I, I do, I see it more as a government failing actually. And I think that, um, even what we know about, um, like within the executive branch administration, that there are all of these positions that are not even filled right now (laughs) and haven't been, you know, people who were fired or just that like, we didn't see that there was any importance to this. So the people who should have been watching and paying attention and coordinating this response have not been there. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, at the point when they started saying, okay, Hey, yeah, we're going to put some money into this and we're going to open it up to the private sector lab core and quest. I mean, they've, they have Mm -hmm. stepped up and they're willing to use their national network to help with this. And I think, that you know some of your other private entities um even locally i would say that the from what i know the hospital responses down here Mm -hmm. is doing better than what i know of is happening in santa clara right just based on like svmh's preparedness despite the fact that we don't even have a case in in monterey county so yeah i guess what my question my my question you answered very nicely was getting at was were the lab cores and quests of the world waiting to be paid before they push forward with enough production of this testing kit. Yeah. Like, does it make a difference that the federal government has finally contributed money, billion, eight billion dollars in response? Does it make a difference that in California, the governor has said, uh, you know, there's been this like proclamation or order of some sort that says that uh, no one should have a copay um, or like you shouldn't have any out of pocket. That's going to be included as a essential health benefit um, if you do get tested. So no one should be fearful of like, I'm not going to get this test because it's going to cost me a hundred bucks that I don't have. Um, yeah, I think those yeah, make a big difference. I just I have a couple of friends who just came back from Italy and they have to stay home for a couple of weeks. And I'm like, wait, what do you do for food? <laughs> you just literally mm-hmm. flew back. And you, you were in Italy for two weeks. You don't have food stored. And like, uh, of course, nowadays it's like, oh, Uber Eats and all that. But it's like, yeah, that for two weeks, that's expensive. Like, who's right. going to pay for that? Um, yeah. Get your friend to go shopping and drop it on your porch, I guess. I yeah, <laughs> right. That's we're we're at the moment now of I'm gonna link this to your friends who came back from Italy. We're at the moment now of the strategies about isolating people in a free society. You know, uh, yeah, you should stay home for the next 14 days. You can't. You ha- you need to shop. You need to go eat. I have a, there's an active, I don't want to say situation, but there's an active going on in our family right now where a homebound 93-year-old near family member wants to go out to lunch with my wife. You know, she's kind of like a family sage. And she's, she really wants to get out and go to, she's got this Thai restaurant that she absolutely <laughs> has to you know, go to. And my wife, who's a nurse, is telling her, I don't know. You know, my wife is 
pulling her hair out, thinking, okay, what can we do for this friend? What can we do for this dear friend? She has to get out. And she's a sitting duck for any virus. But, you know, she probably had the flu virus. She probably had the flu vaccine. But she's a sitting duck for the first case in Monterey County. So I don't know how it's going to turn out. But the point is, it's in her, it's in her control. My wife may be able to, you know, exert some little influence. She said she might say, I talked to my husband, the doctor, but. Yeah. But so there isn't any, because I've actually had several people ask me that question when I tell them that. They're like, so what happens if they do get people sick? And I was like, I don't know. I'm sure they would track them down and give them a ticket or something like that. So is there any kind of rule that you know of? There probably was in China. Yeah, yeah. I'm here with that. Right. I mean, I think if you if you are someone who is like mandated to be quarantined by public health, then yes, like you could potentially be like violating the law if yeah. you were to leave that quarantine. But if public health wasn't even involved and it's just like, okay, you traveled, you know that you're supposed to stay home yeah, for probably. a while. If you choose to go out, I don't know that anything happens to you. Where was it? I think it was Dartmouth recently that there was some guy that not only knew that he shouldn't be out, but I think he even knew that he was positive. <laughs> and he ended up going to some event with a bunch of like Dartmouth college students and, you know, like what's going to happen to him? Is there going to be some kind of criminal charge? Probably not. That's... So as we get to the plan of reducing risk by social isolation, that's going to be a hard turn of the barge. And ultimately, that's what's going to make the difference in, in the cutting down the transmissibility of this, this illness. Now, encouraging things happened have happened over the last few days. You must have heard that the warrior, the next Warrior game, they were, they're not going to allow fans to come to that. Yeah, also March 31st, the Quakes game has been postponed as well. And there's talk about, my mind is, uh, my memory is forgetting that, but there's another big event coming up, a big world event. Yeah. Oh, the, I'm South sorry. South by Southwest in Austin right. got canceled. Coachella. Yeah. They've been talking about, like, is this going to affect the Olympics in Japan? And I know that that's a decision that actually would have to be made, like, relatively soon because they start bringing people yeah. in well in advance of the event. Yeah, you know, you March. might not be watching the games until July, but they bring people in way beforehand to get mm-hmm. prepared. So are you, so you guys aren't stocking up on water and toilet paper then? <laughs> <laughs> we live in California. Everybody should have that stocked anyway. That's how that showed how unprepared we yeah. all are. Yeah. We should all have that. It could be an earthquake, not a virus for us. So another side of the related to that stocking up inventory, another side. Uh, so I took care of my first in this uh, outbreak. I took care of my first pneumonia patient Monday. So rolling back a little bit, uh, Thursday of last week, our public, the public health nurse at the prison, the newly hired public health nurse at the prison, went from clinic to clinic describing, okay, watching us wash our hands and just going through the, the state protocol. And then she came to, yeah, and then there, we have these N95 masks. So two different kind of masks. There's one for the patients that are coughing, and then there's one for the healthcare providers so that we the bug doesn't sneak in, right? It's a tighter fitting mask. So she talked to me about how do you know it fits? And so I'd been through the drill before and I entered it and then busy seeing patients. But just before she left, I said, oh, we have those in the office. I said, oh, we have those in the office. And so she said, yeah, we do. And so she told me where, but I was busy documenting. I didn't quite get it done. Then that was on Thursday. Monday, Mr. Uh, Camus comes in 
and uh, coughing away, no mask on him in the waiting room. I won't get into what fell apart, but <laughs> so then I start, immediately started thinking about my staff. Okay, which nurse is taking care of uh, Mr. Right? And so I said, uh, Laborn, you need to have a mask on. You need to have an N95. Put one on the patient, get him out of the waiting room. <laughs> and Laborn, you need a mask. Could not find uh, N95 mask. Okay. And uh, went all over the clinic, couldn't find him. Finally, after the patient had been sent to the hospital, an empty box of N95 masks showed up. So the nurse told us there were 20 in the office on Thursday. And Monday, <laughs> the first time we had to use it, was empty. So <laughs> inventory, you know, and again, human behavior and individual freedoms. Who knows what those masks went for, for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so these, right. hum, these human behavior things, and, and again, this very, we're not used to take, we're not used to playing rules. Yeah. And oh, by the way, did I tell you that our 34, our 94-year-old friend is a doctor? <laughs> you know, she should know. Yeah, right. That now is not the time to go out. She, yeah, at 94. She was like, eh, we barely discovered viruses when I started doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be it's going to be a hard changing of the position of that barge. I mean, yeah. maybe she's still just playing the odds, though, because, you, I mean, yeah, the death rate is way higher amongst elderly, but even the highest risk group, it's what, right now, like 18, 19%. So maybe yeah. she's like, I still got 80% good odds yeah. I make it. That's <laughs> what everybody's banking on. And... Um, <laughs> You're still in your favorite no matter what. Yeah. Dude, I mean, there was Ebola was like 60 or 70 percent death rate, right? And again, obviously, that wasn't as widespread, but people were laughing at that even more. And I'm like, that's you have a really good chance of dying if you get that. But anyway, people are people are fun. We don't get it. That's what it is. It's, it's, I don't know. It's you hear these numbers again. Eighteen thousand people died of the flu last year. I didn't know one of them, you know. So it it seems so far away. Yeah. We still have to more people die from the flu. We still have to get our flu shots. Oh, and right. I learned, and I'm, I'm sorry for for jumping and interrupting, but a lot of people are like, dude, I'm I'm 25. I'm not gonna get the flu, and if I do, I'll walk right through it. But I guess apparently the reason it's called it's this herd immunity, right? Is like it's not like okay, you might get it and not not even get symptoms, but you might pass it on to somebody right. that it can really hurt. So it's not really to protect you; it's to protect the herd. That's right. so funny, right? Is is that really why yeah. it's not? Yeah. So yeah, the you, ultimate public good. You're doing something that you don't need, so that your cousin who has who's a smoker or your cousin who has asthma doesn't die from the flu okay yeah see and it's weird because i learned this last year at 31 you know and because and so my whole life i was always like, just like it's not about you man <laughs> it, well exactly well first yeah first of all i'm like okay well hey i'm a selfish person um but see what well, it wasn't really ever explained that way it was just kind of like do it it's winter or whatever or it's you know, CVS is doing it for free, so it's time to do it. It was never really explained as in this is part of like, part of being a human. Is you know, it's kind of like jury duty. You know, it <laughs> it sucks, but you have to do it because it, it you know it's part of being an American. It's part of of our system. I don't want to um, open up big can of worms here, but 
we do it for our kids. So with the day yeah, that you, <laughs> the day that you, you know, have your little uh, Osbalditos or whatever the diminutive, <laughs> you'll do it. You'll take your kids. You know, this is an easier. Dis- this would have been an easier discussion ten years ago to say you'll do it and people do it. Now it's a little bit muddy, but you know, you do that oftentimes without all the information. But the other, the case of the flu vaccine, yeah. it's a lot of resistance. It's so weird. And it's just, it's a, what is it? Well, people are so adverse to shots. Come up with a better, <laughs> where's that? We've landed on the moon, but we can't come up with a needle that doesn't hurt. There's got to be a thing to that. Yeah, but like, why do we also, I get really mad when parents are like threatening the kids, you know, of like, <laughs> if you don't stop crying, like they're going to give you a shot. I'm like, why are you saying that? Yeah. Why are you trying to like freak your kid out about getting shots? Because I think like when we really amplified it for them, yeah. especially for kids, if we amplify it, then their reaction is like that much more. Right. So if someone's constantly mm-hmm. threatening you, like be good, or you're going to get shots. Then now you've created this like environment of terror that they've carried with them for their whole life. Yeah, again, that's somebody that will go deal with a stomach pain for years and then one day pass out at work and then it's like, oh. So I want somebody to take my blood, yeah. Or how about (laughs) this one? Doctor, can you give my son a shot? You, you as a threat, that. right? Yeah, right. That was my. He's acting bad over the yeah. not acting bad, but he's acting yeah. up in the office after Don't waiting an hour to see yeah. me. The mother's here for a prenatal visit, but the, you know, doctor, can you give him a shot? There was um, <laughs> in the the outliers. I don't know if you that that was a super famous book, but um, there's a chapter in there where he talks about you know the difference wealthy families with poor families, how they they discuss authority with their kids. Poor families tend to be like, do not disrespect authority, you know, don't get their attention, and they treat doctors as authority figures. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kids, when they, you know, go to the doctor, they're just like stiff and like, no, I don't want to do anything that will cause me pain from this terrible individual here with the lab coat. Um, whereas he contrasted it with a, a, a wealthier family, and the mom was like, you know, the doctor is your friend, you can trust them you know with anything even if there's things that you can't tell me you can tell the doctor and and again it just you know and then at that appointment the kid spoke up you know kind of like i think it was like my armpit stink or something and the doctor was able to explain oh yeah that's just a a process of growing up whereas the poor kid you're there in fear like hope i don't want to do anything that will get me in trouble where doctors I don't think doctors want to get people in trouble, especially in a medical facility. That's not like you're not cops, you know, <laughs> like that's such a different thing. But people equate them with, uh, you know, as authority. And we were just talking about the whole the doctor thing, you know, once you have those uh, that term in front of your name, you can say, yeah, jump off that bridge, man. Doctor's orders. <laughs> yeah. And people will, like all of a sudden there's more weight to that. And um, but, yeah, it, it's so unfortunate that people treat doctors as as because yeah i mean i guess there's pain involved but that's that's natural you know if they're slicing you open it's gonna hurt you know it's Uh, really a downside legacy to the profession like i said maybe half an hour ago uh i have found over the years that you accomplish so little in the office and and one of it is the the power differential right that's a big one not to mention in a place like salinas the language you yeah. know, the language dis, uh, uh, differential, 
oftentimes the skin color differential. Yeah, people, at least I grew up in a black family and uh, yeah, kids had to be behave uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Probably coming from a good place to begin with, but you, you know, we weren't supposed to question authority at all. Yeah. It was safer, you know, just to, it was safer for you not to be, to stick out. Exactly. To be exuberant, (laughs) you know, that's going to draw attention to you, which could be harmful. I think, you know, I'm much older than anybody in this room, but, you know, my parents came of age in the fifties and uh, even though they were up North, there was still legacy of, you know, people get Emmett Till, people getting yeah. uh, abused for for whistling at a at a white woman. So hopefully those days, hopefully that experience is filtering out. Yeah, you know, doctors are friends. <laughs> That's gonna be the name of the episode. <laughs> doctors are friends. Yeah. Doctor mm. is your ally. That's real yeah. though. I mean, I feel like what I you know. I just want my patients to be honest with me. Right. And so if that's like, no, I don't take this medication because it sucks. I don't like the way that makes me feel. I'd rather hear that than have somebody just be like, Oh yeah, I do it. Yeah, I do it. It's like, uh, no, like your refill requests aren't on time. Your numbers don't look good. Like I'm pretty sure you're not taking it. But a lot of times it's, it's this process of trying to build that trust Mm -hmm. or like one of the things I'll always say to people is like, you know, I think it's really hard to take a pill every day. I'm really bad Mm -hmm. at like, if I ever have to take a pill every day, I always forget. Do you think it's hard for you like do you ever forget and you know sometimes we will kind of open up with you and like be honest about it but i mean i don't want to i don't want to make believe that like we're doing something when we're not and if you don't want this treatment or it's not in line with like your personal goals for yourself i'd much rather hear that than you know you're like cool funeral services cost this much (laughs) so there's boy that's really rich there's a two-part question i have here if i can hold my brain together long enough to ask it so Yes, doctors are young doctors are tra- getting trained better today in interview techniques to identify the barriers and uh, work with the barriers, even on the spot, even at that moment there, right? Less, you're less pro- doctors are being trained, at least in family medicine, to be less professorial and more collegial. We can do this together. Okay, so that's part one. Now, Back to my comment, and this is all going to loop back to your experience down there in in the border. In my experience, why I keep saying that what happens in the office is so inconsequential is, yeah, you you practice this way and you you might have good techniques, motivational interviewing techniques, right? And then life is complicated once the door shuts, right? So the real, in my estimation, the real medicine begins once the door does shut and what supports can your clinic offer to make the patient take that medicine for the next 90 days before you see him again, okay? That's the real challenge. And I'm involved in a, in a project now, which is an old idea in the world, but it's a, a newish idea in America. We're involved in a community health worker project. In, in the Latin American countries, they would call it uh, promotores de salud. So these are community experts that help bridge that gap between, okay, the, do- the door shut in the doctor's office. Now, where did he say the pharmacy was? I can pick this up. And how many pills am I going to get? And okay, so we're trying to bring that old idea back. There are those out there trying to bring that old back. And we're getting caught up on the financing of it. How do you pay for those things? Now, how it loops back to Dr. Blair is... I find it so exciting that you're working with Cuban physicians. And my understanding is 
their whole the whole the whole basis of their training is is in community medicine that when they finish medical school and they go out to their first job that their first responsibility there is go find out about that community they're assigned to a neighborhood go go do your study on the neighborhood before you're ready to practice in the office so what does that look like in operationally what does that look like in real life which i know it's not real life practicing in the border right now but there are probably several cuban doctors that you're working with mm-hmm. yeah there's there's two that um they themselves are asylum seekers and so the organization that i work with when i'm down there and i work volunteer i don't get paid when i'm down there um it's called global response management but part of their existence there and something that they feel really strongly about is employing asylum seekers so we have multiple people our we have our pharmacists we have um two different cuban doctors who are there there's multiple guys who work as interpreters and help with um like referrals out to the community if we do need specialists or imaging or lab studies people who do the pharmacy runs to purchase for us and things like that um but I've I've spoken with our Cuban doctors about this multiple times over, you know, that they practice very different than what most of the American physicians who come in are doing. And I think in particular, the ER physicians, people who would otherwise be working in like American emergency departments um, or any other specialists in the United States, they're like, they, they won't make orders on everything. Like everything is imaging and orders and like, oh, send these people to hospital. <laughs> and one of the last times I was down there, me and me and the Cuban doctor keep like frankly laughing at everybody that like, okay, so when the other doctors are here, how many people that day went to the hospital? <laughs> and when it's just me and you, how many people go to the hospital? It's always zero, you know? Like they'll go if it's a for real, you might die from this emergency. But even Mex- in Mexico, medicine is practiced differently. Yeah. You know, if you're in the United States and you have appendicitis, like is basically coming out. Somebody's going to do surgery <laughs> on you, right? If you're in Mexico, it's like we're going to give you antibiotics and we're going to see what happens. And that's majority of the world. You know, we're going to do surgery if it's like completely unavoidable, but not not for any other indication. Um, but you know, yeah, the 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 primary, the only training institution in Cuba. Um, their entire mission is based around taking care of people in under-resourced settings. And so they deliberately try and train people to go work out in rural areas and even from other countries. So they, they know that they're producing this abundance of physicians. Um, and one of the guys that I work with, he was actually sent to Venezuela as his Mm -hmm. um, assignment um, and ended up ultimately getting pulled back um, to Cuba because of being somewhat critical of, of, things that were going on there um yeah so <laughs> i mean that so this crazy. is kind of like what what his asylum case has to do with but um you know every time that we've talked about kind of like what is his training and how is it different and um ideally he wants to you know practice in the united states and talking about like what is he going to be up against trying to practice here and what are the things that are going to be different and just the way that the expectations are different and like where does it really come from so on the Mexican side of the border, there are Cuban doctors seeking asylum into the United yes. States while practicing. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the the first guy that started working with us, um, he 
basically saw a nurse practitioner who is the director of this group of global response management. And she just kind of showed up with her bag of supplies and was sort of seeing people on the sidewalk. And um, when he encountered her, he was working like in a factory in Mexico um, while he was awaiting his asylum case. And he just approached her and said, yeah, I'm a doctor in Cuba. Um, and like, that's that, that, that typical that joke, you know, in my yeah. home country, I'm a top yeah. neurosurgeon and yeah. here I'm, and I'm so a she, street she had him like verify his credentials, mm-hmm. you know, like she just cut her, her arm his, and his, said, his, like, diploma and everything. I mean, he's fantastic. He's an intensivist by training. I mean, he's incredibly skillful. I do feel like I've learned a lot from him. He's younger than me, right. but, um, you know, he's ba- based on the way that they train, he's been in practice longer than I have. And I, I always feel like I learned stuff from him and, um, even like learning a lot of the medications in Mexico or things that are used in Latin America that we don't have here. Um, but you know, what do you do with this? How are you going to do that? I mean, it's been fantastic. So I know the delivery system that I imagine the delivery system in that you're involved in right now is probably very Americanized, uh, may or may not be true. Do you notice a difference between the way he approaches and not necessarily in the exam space, but the way he approaches the community of patients needing care versus how uh, some of the other doctors that are making the frequent lab tests and x-rays and hospital visits do you notice yeah i mean i would say first and foremost he has the ability to say more kind of like let's wait and see and come back and see me in a couple days kind of thing because he's always there and he literally does work seven days a week i mean i think the only days he's ever had off are on the days when he had court hearings in the united states and i've asked him about it i'm like do you do you not want days off and there was even an option of maybe like bringing in someone else to cover for him so he could take weekends off and he's declined it multiple times that he's like what else am i gonna do you know i want to i want to work i want to do something i want to feel useful you're in mexico go eat relax (laughs) (laughs) wow do you think any of the American doctors, or including yourself, are taking or learning anything from working with them and bringing it back and kind of a- applying it? I mean, I definitely am. For, yeah. I, like, for me personally, I definitely am. Um, I, If anything, I would almost like to see a little bit of a shift um, in the way that things are done there so that he is more held up as kind of like, this is his clinic he's the head of this clinic yeah. and we have another Cuban doctor too, but he only works like occasionally he doesn't work every day. Um, but I think to, to put the ownership on them and say like, it's their clinic, like run things by them. If you want to send somebody to the hospital, talk to them about it first, because I think like he, they do assess things differently. And a lot of the times things that we're trying to send out or send to a specialist or, you know, like things that maybe don't need to happen. Um, and I think he, he would be a great, person to be assessing everybody for that but that backstop is not in place right now because um you know i, I certainly don't want to seem like i'm talking trash about this organization or their operations because like they have done something tremendous with what little they had um and continue to have um but i do feel like to me that's how we would level up is to say, okay, you know, things have to start shifting. We have to move from saying like, this is disaster medicine to recognizing that like, we need to be dealing with the chronic conditions here because the situation ain't going away, right? Like there's so many people here at this point that the size of the camp is between 2,500 to 3,000 people. Um, And last time I was down there a couple of weeks ago, I was told there's nobody new coming in and that's BS because I always ask my patients like, where are you from? And like, where are you headed in the United States? 
States? When did you get here? Have you had your court yet? And I would say almost 50% of my patients were relatively newly arrived. It's just that the population that's arriving has shifted and now it's more people from Southern Mexico, whereas majority initially was people from Central America. Um, But now it's, it's a lot more people from like Chiapas and Guerrero were the new arrivals, but there's definitely still a influx of folks coming. And I, I also have a note here. I want to make sure that I bring this up before we're getting close to the hour mark. And I, but I, I want to, uh, again, Dr. John made a note that you just graduated from the Natividad's Family Medicine Training Program. Mm-hmm. Which is, is that what you have to do to become a family medicine doctor or were you one before? Oh. Yeah. So in the United States, the way that it works is you do like your four years of college, undergrad, four years of med school. And then after that, you do a residency in whatever your specialty is going to be. And so for me, my specialty is family medicine. Um, most places, that's a three-year program. Some programs are four years now. Um, but yeah, that's that's how you get your specialty designation. And residency, and again, I'm going to be completely honest, I never fully understood what that was. It obviously makes sense. Residency, like you're living somewhere for a while. <laughs> so, so what I'm thinking is like, uh, again, you want to be a heart surgeon and this hospital is well known for its heart surgery program you go work there for a year or two and that's your residency yeah so i mean i think part of where like the name residency came from is truly back in the day there were people who lived there and natividad was one of those hospitals that like the original residents did actually they had like a facility like a dormitory style facility i visited those places yeah so we no longer live at the hospital but you're essentially assigned to that facility for the period of your training so for those three years like they own me as a worker in terms of what i'm going to be doing so if that's working in the actual hospital or at one of their outpatient clinics like they're responsible for where i'm going to be working and at this point you're a full-fledged doctor already yeah no i do what i want yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, no. When you're a resident, when you're doing your residency, you're already a doctor, right? You, will you right. show up? Okay. So you're you're a physician when you graduate from medical school, right? That's like what gives you the title doctor is your degree, your formal education. Yeah. Um, but then in state of California, this is actually just recently changed. You used to be able to get a medical license after one year of additional training. So one year of residency, mm-hmm. you could get your own license and you could start practicing independently. So if oh. you just wanted to be done, then that was fine. Um, but what, like a year and a half ago, a year ago, um, now in California, you have to finish a full residency to get a full license. So um, it's changed up a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So will that, this is a little sidebar. So will that affect the resident doctor's ability to moonlight um, residency? TBD, like kind of, okay. it's kind of up in the air. So this, this was copying something that is already happening in other States. Mm-hmm. And a big part of why they did it was to try and um, accommodate the international graduates. So people who went to medical school somewhere outside of the United States, but wanted to do residency here, um, were kind of being held to the separate standard. So now everybody is on the same mm-hmm. standard um, and everyone will get a training license at the beginning of residency and whether or not outside employers want to accept your training, training license to be able to say moonlight in an urgent care or something is we'll see in texas they have training licenses and most most residents will still moonlight so it's possible which is always it's always been a nice thing so the first year of residency has traditionally been called your internship year 
You've probably heard of that. Okay, too. yeah. Ninety nine percent of my knowledge comes from me watching Scrubs growing up. So and yeah, and that's <laughs> so I know that term yeah. as well. <laughs> probably more realistic than like any other doctor show about residency, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so an intern is also a resident and a doctor. Yeah, so yes. now I think interns, more commonly, they're called R1 year. That's your R1 year. But historically, related to the last question about moon, moonlighting, after you finish your, you've got your medical license, and after you've finished your intern, internship, you're able to then go out and do extra work. And it's been so helpful to so many young doctors trying to get out of debt, trying to start a family, trying to maybe buy a house. The extra, money that you can make, <laughs> the extra money you can make after getting your internship completed. So I'd hate for residents, what you're describing, the law wouldn't take that option away from them. And are there doctors' unions? Because I feel like I feel like this is some you know some a group that would so, take that up to like, be like hey kind of yes kind of no um, majority of, of folks are barred from participating in a union oh really but, um, it depends on who your employer is so what you're allowed to do it the so police I, have unions uh, well what? there was a people when I before I became a union member in the Union of American Physicians and Dentists there was the always dentist this, snuck in there yeah there was always this discussion about. Uh, Restraint of trade. If doctors unionized, there would be restraint of trade and monopolization, and it would work out bad for patients. You go on strike. Who knows? But I, I'm a state of California employee, and that group of physicians is uh, unionized. If you want to be, you're part of the union. And um, we are, it's not a socially correct, it's not a socially active union. They mostly argue about. You know, you're negotiating against the state for workplace conditions, you know, what we think is correct compensation, things like that. So it's kind of a it's kind of a boring union. I would say that out of all the union where I work, I think in my group, there's 12 of us. I think three of us are union members. So, you know, it's not it's not not a sexy union. It's not like Teamsters. You know, I tried to, we did an outreach last year, I think at the Cesar Chavez rally, and I called my union member and I said, can you guys send me some shirts? I want to, <laughs> I want, this is a big union event in Salinas. I want to proudly wear my, or rock my UAPD shirt and then crickets on the other end. <laughs> think it like blew his mind. <laughs> so yes and no. Um, so it did, Yeah. I have a four-day work week. So to get to the root of your (laughs) question, I've tried my whole life to get a four-day work week. And I finally got a four 10-hour day. I think a lot of doctors would like it. I finally got a four 10-hour day work week. It's something that our members negotiated. So I have Wednesdays off to go play golf. And do podcasts. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Today's Wednesday, isn't it? I was going to say the residents are, uh, they're unionized with uh, the county workers for SEIU 521. But I would say it's, it's their activity is is more limited to the times when the contract negotiations happen but yeah i was very proud to be part of the last contract negotiation <laughs> team because we crushed it so. <laughs> That's what I heard. no mediation son <laughs> uh, just to totally be a what's the word 100 percent uh transparent we are forbidden from striking so I think that's a good yeah. Point. That would be pretty yeah, dangerous. This this and we include not only the prison doctors, but the UC doctors, the CSU doctors, and maybe the LA County Jail doctors are all in the same union. And who knows where the dentists are? 
but we're we're, nah. we're prohibited. Y'all can strike. So we can't use that that tool. I don't know SEIU. I don't know. Probably not. Residents can't do. No, I think they they officially classified us as uh, like essential employees. Yeah. So you'd have a very hard time being allowed to strike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, um, did we cover that? Did we cover everything? I don't know. I'm sorry. Excuse my ignorant questions. I love having. <laughs> educated people in front of me that I could ask and I could go to the bar and pretend like I that I know something. Um, but did you, did we cover everything you wanted? Yeah, I think so. I would like to take the opportunity to ask Blair for you, the Salinas Underground podcast. You know, I'd like to ask you a question. You know, when you finish your residency training, there are so many things you can do. You know, there's a shortage, long story short, there's a long, there's a shortage of doctors nationwide. Why did you decide to stay in Monterey County? Why did you decide to stay? Why did you decide to stay and work in Salinas and stay in Monterey County? I'm so happy for it, but yeah. Um, well, I think a lot, I felt the same as a lot of residents, which is that where you train, you know people, you have this already kind of like established base, both with your patients, but then you also know the other doctors. You know the systems here, so in some ways it's just easier to say because you don't have to reestablish yourself. Um, but then also, like I had some pretty good opportunities that were thrown my way um, when I, well, before I graduated, I told everybody I didn't want to be employed. And they were kind of horrified and like, what does that mean? (laughs) You went through all this and you don't want to work. I'm like, no, I'm not saying I don't want to work. I just don't want to be employed. I don't want to be owned. I don't want to like have to go to the same place every single day and have them tell me what to do. Like I want to practice on my terms. And fortunately I, I fell into a couple different situations where I was given that freedom and it's been this like interesting little patchwork over the past year and a half, but I it's all been on my terms and doing what I want. So, so since after medical school, medical school, you've been here in Salinas yeah. in the Salinas so I've been area here since, um, since 2015. Yeah. Where'd you go? Where'd you do medical school, school at? In Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. What school? University of North Texas. Is that a good one, Dr. John? Is that, a good one? Is that like the Chico State of medical schools? <laughs> in Texas? Yeah, probably, actually. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not an MD. I'm an osteopathic physician. And like historically, osteopathic physicians are somewhat like looked down upon. Um, but you have like essential oils? Or... Me, it was, um, I, I fix things with my hands, but it's been incredibly valuable skill set. And at this point, like people seek me out for being able to do that. So um it certainly hasn't held me back and you do have you do hang have a shingle hanging somewhere in salinas <laughs> right so if jessica wants to yeah. come by and get uh osteopathic manipulation of her neck or her tib fib <laughs> fracture fix after playing soccer she could do that she could see you in the I mean, office i can't oh, fix a broken bone with my hands but you can probably fix the screwed up that happens once your cast finally comes off yeah <laughs> I was okay, and I, I I had one more question. I'm over here joking around, talking to scrubs. But is there really a rivalry between like surgeons and other what what would you call them? And not internal medicine is that what it is? But like, do, are, do surgeons really think they're cooler? <laughs> so I have a joke. So yes. So uh, so typical medical staff meeting. The group. Most of the group arrives at six o'clock and a topic comes up 
and they go back and forth. The pediatricians want it this way. The obstetricians want it. No, not the The family doctors <laughs> want it this way. The internists want it that way. This discussion goes on for 55 minutes. The surgeon walks in the room at five minutes to seven. He's got a case at seven and says, we're going to do this and walks out. So, uh, no, they get a bad rap. <laughs> they get a bad rap. Uh, you can't compete with them. You can't. They do something very unique. Yeah. You know, they do something very unique. And they're, they, you know, they're, they have to be abrupt. You know, you have to make a decision on the spot. I couldn't do. I remember trying to do a cholis. I knew I wasn't going to be a surgeon when I botched the cholecystectomy on a dog in med school. I When I went to medical school, we still had to do dog surgery. You probably didn't. Oh. There was no dog surgery. So I had the, and and it's foolish because how many, probably just 10% of us were going to go into surgery, but 100% of us had to do this. Mm -hmm. And in retro, in the present day sensibility, it was foolish for me to try to do surgery, take a gallbladder out of a dog. I'm just not, my dad could have told you. He could have told the dean of medical school, don't let John do surgery, you know. But 100% of us had to do it. And so it's a very unique skill set. And I wouldn't say it's competition. It's just they're, you know, they're the, they're powerful. And they, <laughs> what they do is something that society needs. And we know that some people have great uh, visual, spatial uh, intelligence, and some people don't. And they know it too, and they <laughs> can be very abrupt. Uh, direct decision makers. They're not going to sit and talk to you about, well, um, yeah, you should, uh, have you thought about maybe eating less potatoes? And I can give you some ideas about ways to cut down your car. <laughs> That's not what your surgeon's going to do, which is things that we're expert at. That's another, again, another storyline on Scrubs as well. Where it's all- less than like rivalry. It's just, it's attitude, right? And it is a different <laughs> attitude. Cause like, I remember as, as a medical student, I wasn't like ruling out surgery. I'm like, yeah, I have excellent fine motor skills. Like I could really be good at this, but I was with the surgical team that was all men. Like the other med oh, students were men, the yeah. residents were all men, all the attendings were men. And I showed up to work like every day. And these were crazy long hours. I mean, I was getting there at like four o'clock in the morning, leaving at like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And I show up every day. Like I was ready to get in a fight with somebody. <laughs> and like, I had to carry this attitude because that was like sucks. the only way that you could get along. And even like when you go up and down the stairs in the hospital, you go as a group and like, we would like run, we would run <laughs> on the stairs. And so me and my friend that was on the service with me, were like, all right, all right, here we go. Surgery, you know, <laughs> I can't get like pumped up about it. But like, it was real. That's how it was. And then by the end of that rotation, I remember being like, man, I'm just like, I'm so exhausted and I can't keep that up for years. You know, I did fine here, but like, I cannot keep that up for years. And for me, that's what made me be like, no, can't do surgery. They are the jocks of the medical world. They're totally the jocks of the medical world. (laughs) When you you need one, you want one to be at the hospital. Yeah, Yeah, there's no other choice when you actually need them, right? Yeah. One of our in high school, one of our coaches was a doctor also in Natividad, and he was a surgeon. He was like, "It's great. Whenever I cut somebody up and they survive, I'm the hero. And <laughs> when they don't make it, I'm like, I tried my best. Yeah, you know? I did the best I could. You know? I was like, you tried. That's right, doc. You know, it was a really hard surgery. I, was like, I did what I could. I was like, um, but anyway, again, 
Dr. Blair, because you get your first name too. No. Dr. Blair, Dr. John, thank you for, for, for coming on the show. Um, again, you're more than welcome to come back on. As you can see, Dr. John took that took that opportunity. <laughs> thank you. Now I, well, and I love it because again, we can we can go so many different directions. We can literally talk about what's it like to be a woman in the medical field. That would be a whole, you know easily a three hour show. We can talk about what's it like to be at the border every couple of weeks. You know. We, we can talk about again here in Salinas, you know, being a um, so anyway, yeah. This, I think, this was a good introduction. You put up with my silly questions, <laughs> I mean, those are honest. I'm really like, come on, I never get I don't hang out with doctors from Salinas, yeah. <laughs> and this isn't even though. Blair and I are not from Salinas. It's my home now. I've lived here 37 years, I think. I lived here longer than me, and I was born here, so okay. you're from here. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Um, I We all know, each of us know, young people who grew up, went to Alvarez That's High, always, yeah. went to Alisal High, went to Salinas High. One of the first youngsters I delivered here back in 1987, he's a, he's an internal medicine resident at the Mayo Clinic right now. His mom uh, was a strawberry picker, uh, and quickly she, she became a single mom after uh, the young man was born. So just the, the traditional story of the immigrant worker in Salinas gave birth and raised this young man by herself, and... I don't want to tell too much of the story because people might know who I'm talking about, but he's, uh, what an incredible story. Yeah. Uh, and that's just one. There are others. There's another doctor over at Chomp right now, another Salinas born and bred over at Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula. So these are, I'm telling you the stories of the people who made it and come back. Yeah. There's, there's an equal and probably larger number that decided to, no, I don't want to come back. I want to stay in North Carolina where I went to medical school and I want to be a doctor over there. So it's doable. We just happen to be foreigners, you know, from the East Coast or or Nebraska in your case. But people are doing it. People from Salinas. I'm sure you can tell me about people in your class, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, damn, that guy, I was born in 87. He's at the Mayo Clinic. I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Terrible example, Dr. John. <laughs> he didn't see if you would have gave birth to me, I would have probably. <laughs> but he probably couldn't host a podcast like this. The point thank you. Is, thank you for making just me feel better. <laughs> talent is everywhere. Yeah. It just yes, needs definitely. an opportunity and mentoring. Yeah. No, good, good, good words to end on. And again, thanks for coming on. And again, Dr. Blair, because that's your new name now. But you're you're also more than welcome when you come back again from Texas. Please tell us your stories. Yeah, come in, come back and do this. Like when we're when we're done with the coronavirus scare, you can come back and we'll do a debrief and see how many Americans still lived. Yeah, I'll let you know when it's like. It'll be like Mad Max. Just, I just want to get mine to get it over with. Yeah. So funny you should say that because I've already told people I'm like if they start canceling all the air travel, I'm still going to Texas and I'm gonna like Mad Max it through the desert to get there. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, thank us. you for coming on.